Are you ready to reach the mountaintop of your life? Do you want to turn your dreams into your reality? If that sounds like you, then welcome to the Mountaintop Motivation Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Mountaintop Motivation Podcast. Today, I am here with Tamara Moss. And the reason why I brought Tamara Moss on is because she is one of the most inspiring people that I have met. We, When we first met, we had a conversation where she shared her story with me, and I was literally in tears. And I thought, I just need to have this conversation on this podcast so that people can hear her story and be inspired by her. So Tamara, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing awesome. Glad to be here with you. I I just love your contagious smile. You can always tell a real smile (laughs) because you see teeth as opposed to a, uh, as opposed to a fake smile. And so that, that is a real smile right there. Um, Tamara, to get us started, I I, want to share your story. And I'm not sure where the best place to start. Do you think the best place to start is from the very beginning? Is that, is that where we should start today? Hey, hey, why not? The very beginning is what got to me where I am today. So, right. So, so let's, let's hear your story. Um, let's, let's just start from the beginning and let's do this. We'll kind of just take chunks of it. So let's start initially with, um, your birth and your first year your, your, your experience of your first year of life in which you, um, had quite a life-changing experience. Yeah. Um, so my first year of life is where I personally say it, it all began. And, um, my mom was 17 years old when she, um, gave birth to me and, um, you know, she was young, she was on her own. And within that first month of my life, um, we ended up being homeless to start off with. So um, at that point, my mom found out that she could voluntarily place me in foster care. I was developing a rash just from moving um, to different places and stuff like that. So she voluntarily placed me in foster care. And you Um, were in New York City, correct? I was in New York City, absolutely. Um, and just, just for context, being homeless, what month was, it, was this? This was the day after Christmas. Um, I was a month old. So you were yep. homeless mm-hmm. with my mom in New York in, in the New winter. York in the winter. Oh yes. man! Wow. And so she placed me in foster care just so I would have a roof over my head, and she could find us a place and get some support from the system. And she did that. Um, and we had visits and things of that nature and all was great. And then at the age of 10 months, um, there was a situation that ensued where my dad got really upset with my mom over something. I, I'm not gonna say it's small at all, but um, she basically cheated on him and he, and he caught her. And so he got really upset. She was then kicking him out um which I think kind of confused him and if anybody knows anything about my dad he was severely abused as a kid himself 
And so he picked up a hammer, he went towards her, but then he came back towards me and beat me five times on the back to where my bone and my spinal cord broke. So the bone healed, but obviously, as you all know, the spinal cord can't be healed. And so it left me to be a paraplegic at the L2, um, an L2 incomplete paraplegic, which means I have some movement, some feeling, but I don't have the ability to walk and, and things of that nature. Mm. And from there on out, my mom left me and my dad went to jail and I was placed back in foster care. I just want to take a moment, people hearing this for the first time, I've heard this multiple times, but it still hits me so hard. And I, I, what do you think was going on in your father's mind when he went and did this? You know, by the grace of God, when I was young, I had this intuition that it's, it wasn't like, it wasn't intentionally to hurt me, but it was intentional. And when you've been in, in an environment as a kid, and I learned this along the way through my education, um, you're impoverished, you're being abused and things of that nature, it rewires the brain. So he had a mother that abused him. Now his first girlfriend has cheated on him with a family member. He couldn't take that level of hurt. And so through my conversations with him, after meeting him later on in my life, I think it was more for a split second, I gave you something precious. You're doing this to me, I'm taking it back. And so it was an intent to take my life for sure. Um, but it was almost kind of like when you go through those extreme levels of rages and you can't come out of it and then you act on what you're thinking. And so to me, that's it, the intent was terrible. Um, but I think that's how he got to that point. And the thing that I find most inspiring about you, and we'll go through the, the rest of your timeline in your story, but when we had that first conversation, the thing that really brought me to tears was you talking about your ability to find it in your heart to forgive your father, which some people would just find unfathomable. And I guess I have two questions. One is, how were you able to forgive him? And the second thing is, what has that done for you internally in terms of your internal spirit, your mindset emotionally? What has that done for you to have the courage to forgive? Uh, I think from very, very young, um, it's, it's, it's kind of a funny story because my foster slash adopted mom, she wasn't the kindest soul in the world. And so this is literally how I was introduced to faith in God. Like I saw her come home one day and she was talking about church and God. And I was just like, this lady goes to church? Like, really? But then I said to myself, wait a minute there's something out there more powerful than me that could help me. And so I decided from that point on, like, I'm going to believe in whatever this higher power thing is, like whatever it is. And it's this powerful, it needs to be by my side and help me. And so mm. around eight or nine years old, I decided I was going to have faith and I would listen to her. Sometimes she would go into the church and sometimes she would listen to, I think his name was Dr. Price. And he will always say, 
leave by faith, not by sight. And so that stuck with me. Um, and throughout that process, um, just through, I'll be honest with you, just through my education, like learning about African-American history, learning about the Holocaust, learning about all these things that happened in the world and, and you know, Gandhi and learning about the people that went through so much, so much adversity, um, so much violence in their lives and things of that nature, like the Holocaust. And they came out and they were able to rise above it and be forgiving. That's really where I got my forgiving nature from, my education. And that started very, 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 very young where I learned about people that were enslaved or I learned about people in the Holocaust or different cultures that went through, through different things. And I hyper-focused on the people that came out of it, but they didn't just come out of it with anger. They came out of it with a sense of peace and a sense of, I'm gonna forgive this person, not because it's best for them, but because it was best for themselves, not the person that hurt them. That's really yes. truly where that came from, my education. Yeah. That's amazing. You talking about that makes me think about uh, Nelson Mandela and you know his forgiveness. And just during lunch today, I was watching um, David Letterman has a show on Netflix now where he interviews people for uh -huh. like an hour. I don't know if you've seen it at all. Have you, okay, yeah, great. Was the have you watched the Have you watched the Will Smith episode yet? It I did. Okay. I was watching that during lunch today. You know, during uh -huh. lunch, I was watching that. And if you remember, he talks about um, learning about or meeting Nelson Mandela while he was filming the movie Ali and Ooh. talks about meeting him and having those conversations with him and understanding uh, what forgiveness really does. And I see you at that exact same level as a Nelson Mandela, you know, as these people who are these pillars of what it means to forgive and what, it, what the, the, the positivity that comes into their lives, your story to me is at the exact same level as someone like a Nelson Mandela, which is just unbelievable. And he talks about it being poison that you're drinking yourself you're upset with an enemy. And so what you do is you drink poison. Yeah, that's not the exact quote, but something like that. And, and it just made me think about that while I was eating lunch today, watching that interview, thinking about what I was going to be doing this afternoon, talking with you, watching that. I just said, wow, you know, people talk about Nelson Mandela in this way because of his ability to forgive. And now I have the privilege to talk to someone uh, this afternoon who has done something just as amazing, if not even more amazing. I mean, just so incredible. And I think that you're just so inspiring that you had that ability to forgive your father and see him as a, what was he, a 17-year-old kid at the time, something like that? 16 going on 17. Um, right. It was uh, gut-wrenching for him, you know, years later after I met him and you know, I saw the pain in his eyes because he didn't you know, I lost my ability to walk in my family and he lost his child and he was sent to an adult prison, you know, kind of as a teenager. So um, life was not kind to him, 
before what he did and wasn't kind after to what he did. But you never really know when you forgive a person until you're faced to do something for a person that's outside the box. Everybody can walk around and say, I forgive my mom, I forgive my dad, I forgive whoever who's caused damage to me or hurt to me. But you don't really know until the time comes where God says, do you really forgive? And for me, that time came when um, I got a call at 5.30 in the morning. I, it was weird because I woke up, my eyes opened and my heart was racing. And about 30 seconds later, New York City Police Department called me and said that my dad had been murdered. They found a picture of me with my number on it in his back pocket. Mm. And I remember saying to myself, one, I was shocked. And two, I was like, man, we just met two years ago. How could this be happening? And then I had an aunt say, just put him in Potter's Field. And I said, Potter's Field? Well, that's a place where you go where you have no one. There's no one to bury you. And I said to myself at that point, I'm going to bury my dad with dignity and I'm going to bury him the right way. And that's the moment I knew I had truly forgiven him. So you really don't know until you're faced with some kind of act or action that you have to be confronted with that taps into your anger towards this person. And if you come out and you say, you know what, I'm gonna do this the right way, then you know, you know that you've forgiven that person. Yeah, and that, I mean, that, that's just such a powerful example that, that you were able to do that and find compassion. Uh, how, how old was he when he was murdered? He was about 46. Okay. 46, 44, 46, like mid 40s. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Now, a lot of people who had an accident, uh, a lot of people had a, I don't even want to call it an accident, and let's call it an incident um, that made them a quadriplegic or paraplegic or, or any of those kind of things. Typically, it's later on in life, and you experience this at such a young age. So what was it like um, growing up through school, elementary school, middle school, those kind of things um, as a paraplegic person in a wheelchair? What, what did you learn from that? What, what kind of, tell us about that. It was tough. You know, I grew up in, you know, your teenage years are, are what you remember. And so by the time I could remember up until my teenage years, I grew up pre-ADA, so there wasn't a lot of protection for me. Um, There wasn't a lot of demands on the world around me to accommodate me and things of that nature. So it was tough. And then it was also the era where adults, if they saw you in a wheelchair, you were compared to, you know, a physical impairment and a mental impairment was the same thing if you were in a wheelchair. And so I had to fight against a lot of that, even with some teachers. Um, and then buses and trains, things weren't really accessible. So I couldn't get around the way I wanted to. And so, and then at home, I had a person telling me that, you know, I couldn't do this, I couldn't do that. I would never be this, I would never be that. So there were so many different angles that I was fighting against because the notion that a paraplegic could be anything in life just was unheard of at that time. I didn't have other paraplegic role models around me to know that there was that was a possibility. I was always 
once I got to middle school, I was the only person with a disability in my middle school, 324. Once I got to high school, there, there were others, but they really didn't have an impact on me. And so for me, it was just like, I'm this paraplegic girl and one or two things can happen. When, when I was young and the state came and said, you know, when you're 18, we're gonna come get you and you'll, you know, we'll put you in a home and we'll take care of you. I will never forget that because I was five years old and I said, what, they're planning my future? And in my head subconsciously, I was like, no, no, that's not the way it's gonna be. And so as I got to eight and nine years old and I was a, an advanced reader and writer and things like that. So I planned my future and I knew at 17, 18, I was going to leave foster care and go out on my own. And it was, I, it was just gonna be me against New York City. That's how it felt to me. And pretty much that's what I did. I, I had this belief in myself, this spiritual and earthly belief in myself that I was destined to be something. The option to not be something, it just wasn't an option for me. There was, there was no way that would be an option for me. And so um, I had to battle those things. I had to battle, you know, places not accessible for me, going to get summer jobs. People would tell me, we can't hire you because you're in a wheelchair. Once I got to college and I was doing my student teaching, parents, I don't want a person in a wheelchair teaching my child. I had to go through all of those things. But the one thing I knew is the more I prove myself, the better it's going to be. I didn't get down on myself. There, there were some angry moments, but I knew if I stopped, everything would stop. So I just kept going and I kept going and I kept proving myself. And I kept proving to people like, no, not only am I going to teach your teacher, teach your child, I'm going to be the best teacher that your child probably has ever had. And so that was kind yes. of my mentality. But it was really, really difficult because, you know, it's when you have a disability, a physical disability, especially back then, you were treated like you had a cognitive disability. And that that bothered me. And I, I, and I, and I made it a point that no matter what I do, when I step outside of my home, I was proven to people that a paraplegic could do A, B, and C. Um, and that was my mission. Very young, that was my mission. Wow. And what helped, it's what propelled that was a teacher. I had one great, 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 beyond great teacher who went into the classroom and she said, who are you? And I said, Michelle. She said, what are you doing in here? You're reading two grades above grade level. I said, I don't know. And come to realize I was in an ED classroom as a kid with the orthopedic impairment because they just didn't mm. know what to do with me. Um, and she got me out of there and she pushed me and she pushed me and she told me, be realistic in what you want to do, but you're, you're destined to be a star. You're going to be going to do great things in life. And that one teacher, those words never left me. And she's passed on now, but all it took was her. I, I swear to you, all it took was her because there was no one else. Wow. Wow. And when you say all it took was her, what do you mean by that? That she just sparked something inside of you? It was like, I had the belief in myself. Um, I didn't expect someone else to tell me like, you're going to be okay in life. Cause I had never had it. No one, no one told me, you know, no one around me in the family I was in felt that way about me. I felt it about myself. She validated my own thoughts. You know, she, um, I also had a, a physical education teacher who was second to her because I started developing my athletic skills. And he said, he said, you can play basketball. You got some talent. You could do this. Um, so even though I knew 
hearing it from another adult and when someone else sees in you what you also see, it validates it. It confirms it. And that's what it did for me. There's something very powerful about that. Uh, one of my mentors named Josh Ship says that every kid is one caring adult away from a success story. That is a total fact. That yeah. is a total if fact. And I had that one, Miss St. Hill, Miss Jean St. Hill, that one teacher and the physical ed teacher from the athletic perspective that really propelled me. Because I knew, but to hear it from someone else, it's like, oh, I knew I was right. I knew I wasn't bugging out. And so <laughs> it, 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 it propelled my confidence and, and just validated what I was already is that what inspired you to get into education? No. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I honestly was never going to be a teacher. I wanted to be a writer. I used to write stories and plays and stuff like that. Um, but when I left foster care, um, I wanted to do that or be a lawyer. And both of those things was going to take quite a long time and a lot of money, which I didn't have. And so um, I wasn't, I hadn't de declared my major until like my second, uh, maybe third year, second year, second year. Um, my roommate, one of my roommates was, she was doing something. She was creating a lesson. And I was, I asked her, what are you doing? And she told me, and I was like, man, that looks like a lot of fun. And then I just went, I just became an education major. I had no idea what that entailed. I had no idea how that was going to work for me. I just knew what she was doing looked like a lot of fun and I wanted to do it too. And it would get me out of school in four years instead of as a lawyer, you know, eight years and that kind of a thing. Because I was on my own at that point. I had to take care of myself. So um, I had to speed up the process. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I'd love to get into your, your background as a, as a basketball player. I'd love to get to that that step of your journey. So you get into college and you started playing basketball. Tell us about that. I think that's such Actually, a cool thing. Yeah, I started playing basketball eight years old. And oh, I didn't know that, cool. No, I, I started young. I just didn't play wheelchair basketball. So as I became a teenager, I played outside with the boys and um, we played half court basketball. It was the little court by Boys and Girls High School. And we play, and they would always pick me because I could shoot. But from that point on, I started developing. You were, you were playing with, with all the, the kids that had, wow, that's, and you were competing. You were being I chosen. Competing. I was competing. That's awesome. I wasn't the greatest defender because I didn't have the lateral movement, but they would just help right. me pretty much. But I had really long arms. And so I could shoot, I could do things. They used to call me like little Iverson in a wheelchair, you know? Mm. So it, it was really God-given talent. But wait, but, but, wait, but basketball was a struggle for me as I got older. So the purpose basketball served for me as a kid was very different as, as a mature teenager or a young adult. As a kid, I loved Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan. I loved basketball, but I never could really watch it like that. But I know I, I had an innate love for it. Um, so I would play outside and stuff like that. And one day I found out about a tournament in Manhattan. So I went to this tournament in Manhattan, did super, super well, and they recruited me. But I didn't pay attention to, I didn't take those recruits seriously because I knew I didn't want to leave New York. So it just went behind, just, it just went to the wayside pretty much for me. Um, 
and so from there I was I was in college I was doing my last year of student teaching for my bachelor's degree and this thing I've been fighting all my life which is you know things are not accessible for me so my cooperating teacher she was getting upset that I couldn't be at the school like at eight and I couldn't be there till nine because the first bus wasn't accessible to like 835. So there was no way for me to get on the bus. So from there, they wanted me to take like a special bus, you know, for like uh, people with cognitive impairments. And I said, no, I have been through this already. They wanted me to take the yellow special bus when I was young. And I said, no, I did it my way. And so here I was again faced with the same struggle and the same roadblock. And from that point on, I said, you know what? I called my advisor. I said, I'm done with New York. I'm just going to go to Florida. And he said, why on earth are you going to Florida? I said, Mickey Mouse is there and he seems like a positive person. So I'm out of here. And that was literally what I said to him. So I went there and I was still a semester or two away from getting my degree. And I went there and I played for the Orlando Magic wheelchair basketball team. And we had games and stuff like that. But we also got to do halftime shows at the Orlando Magic. And so from there, I had a lot of fun, had a blast. Um, I decided I still had eligibility because I had never played college ball yet. So I made the cross trip, cross country trip to University of Arizona where I decided to work on my masters and play two years, two or three years of wheelchair basketball. I didn't want to get to my sixties and be like, man, I never did that. So I exhausted my eligibility and did it. But it was wow. difficult. It was that playing wheelchair basketball was probably the most difficult challenge for me because I had natural gifts that I couldn't exploit on the basketball court. I could see things that I would do. Like in my head, I was always walking. So when I'm on a basketball, when a basketball court, when I do moves, I'm walking. I'm not in a chair. I never made that transition. So I, I it would upset me. And I struggled with that. I struggled with those moments like, man, I should be walking playing basketball. The other thing is wheelchair basketball didn't give me the excitement that regular basketball did. Like even when I played on the courts in New York City, people would come out and see us play. People would be cheering for us. It's not a lot of fans in wheelchair basketball, things of that nature. And I feel like the league kind of treats you like you have a disability. And it just, it, I played it. I enjoyed it at times, but it wasn't the most enjoyable for me. But it served its purpose. It served its purpose because I got to coach basketball. I coached boys basketball, you know, 10, 11 year olds. And um, that that was fun. That was a lot of fun to be able to get the, to get boys to listen to you when you're a paraplegic is fascinating. And I did. Wow. And so then how did you get into education? You've spent uh, a, um, your career so far in education and you've made a big difference there. What, what was that like? How did you get into education? Um, my major, I started to major in education psychology. I got my associates in um, early childhood. And then I got my bachelor's in elementary education. But what I did was I was, I was working at the, I would just work in the cafeterias of my school. It was minimum wage back then and stuff like that. But it was putting money in my pocket because I was completely by myself. Um, and then I said, I said, Hmm, I've got to somehow connect my job that I, a job that I'm working at to pay my bills with my future. 
So I was like, I can't be working in this cafeteria forever. I got to find something else. But when you're a paraplegic, it's very hard to get hired anywhere, you know? So what I did was I decided I will work in after school programs. I'm working with students, I'm working with kids. And that directly correlates with me becoming a future teacher. And so from that point on, I worked in after school programs. Then I became, then I was substituting while I was going to school. And then one day in Florida, this principal came to me. She sat next to me in the assembly because I was substituting at the time. And she said, we got to talk business. And I said, okay. And she talked to me later on. She said she would love to hire me. She said, I'm really good with kids. I did that. And the second year of that, I started getting kids with behavior issues. She called me into the office and she said, I'm going to give you this kid and he has an emotional disorder. And I said, okay. She said, he has bipolar, schizophrenia. It was a whole bunch of things. And I was like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to do that. She said, you will be fine. She took mm. him from the actual special ed teacher and gave him to me. I wasn't in special ed yet, you know? Wow. And so I overheard teachers saying, she's not going to be able to do that. She's in a wheelchair. I went, then it was back to that. And we, we excelled. And I said, you know what? I'm good working with kids that, you know, have emotional disorders. And from there, that's kind of what I did. Wow. Now you spent that time in education, but today your primary focus is helping people in education, helping students, helping all sorts of people. Hearing your story, being able to apply that with a, a lens of how important resilience is. What do you want people to learn from your story? I want people to understand that no matter what happens in your life, time doesn't stop and life doesn't stop. And when you're going through these adversities, whether at home, at school, whatever it is, whenever something is holding you back, particularly for foster kids. I try to tell people when you're in those predicaments, you're chosen. You're chosen to do great things because the average normal person can't overcome that. They can't withstand that. You were chosen to be in foster care or you were chosen to be in this situation that you're in because you're chosen to come out of it. Just like you were chosen to be in it, you're chosen to come out of it to teach other people. And so the idea is when things happen, do you just say, you know what, forget it, it's over. I'm never gonna be anything and just give up. Or do you say, I'm gonna do all I can to be something. Because the one thing I always tell my students, you're only a child for 18 years of your life. The rest of your life is an adult. And I understood that as a kid. So if I waste all these years as a kid, I'm gonna have like 70 years of a crappy adulthood the math didn't make sense to me. So I'll be a kid 17 years in this crazy childhood that I have, but the rest of my life is going to be great. And that's a choice I made. And that's a choice everybody can make because the adults can fail you. Your teachers can fail you, fail you, your friends can fail you. But when I say you can make it when there is no one, I change that. You can make it if there is no one because you have someone, which is you. And as long as you have you, and as long as you're thinking you have the right mindset, it's all mindset, then you can propel in life and you can be a star in your space in the universe. You see people that are custodians, right? 
And some of the greatest custodians star in their role in life. And that's all it's about. We preached out in the basketball court. If you're the 15th man, star in that role. So if you're the bus driver, star in that role. If you're a sanitation worker, star in that role. If you're a doctor, star in your role. Everybody has a role in life. And the objective is to star in your role and be happy in your role. Everybody's not gonna be rich. Not everybody's gonna be famous, but you can be your own star in the space that you pick in the universe because there's a lane for everyone. But giving up should never be an option. It should never be an option. I love that idea of starring in your role. I think that's so powerful. And I think that my, in my opinion, if someone wants to, I'll put it this way. I think it's very hard to advance to a different role if you're not starring in the role that you're currently in. A lot of people have the attitude of, oh, you know what? I'll put the work in when I get there. But it's probably not true. You, you probably won't. And he certainly won't get there. You got to star in the role that you're in right now. Yep. Yep. Now, there's a lot of people who are listening to this. And I can say that because as a coach, I have learned that almost everyone has some kind of experience in their past that they're still holding on to without the ability to, or not without the ability, without the decision to forgive whoever was involved with that. What advice would you give to that person listening that is holding on to that pain and is holding on to um, some things that would really benefit them if they let go and just forgave. You know, people go to church and people go to different places and people say, don't hold on to it and, and just forgive it. Forgetting that the human body naturally holds on to things. And so when you hurt, you have this innate expectation that the person that hurt you Will make it right and make amends with you. The person that hurt you will apologize. And people have to start to understand that whenever someone hurts you, it's never about you. It's about them. When they do something, if your mom is abusing you, if your dad is on drugs or your dad is in jail, if your parents are not there for you and things of that nature, it's never, it's not your fault. It has nothing to do with you and it's all them and so you have to make a conscious decision to move on it's it's not and it's not just simply move on you have to have things in place in your life that help you move on for me it was basketball you can find something that takes your mind off of it and the more your mind is away from it right away from the toxicity toxicity of the situation it helps the brain to move on otherwise the brain gets stuck and that's how people end up forming depression and things of that nature. You get stuck in that hole of the hurt that someone caused you. You know what I mean? And you have to just say to yourself, the body just naturally doesn't move on. That's not the way the body naturally does. So it naturally works. So you have to help it move on. You have to find things to substitute those moments. For me, it's basketball. Sometimes it's watching basketball. Sometimes it's simply watching TV for me. If I feel like I'm going under a little bit, I get me into a nice series and binge watch. I mean, when I watched Once Upon a Time, I, I was so in it. I thought I was in the story, you know? <laughs> I love so, that show too. <laughs> yeah, you have, you have to learn to redirect the brain and let, not let the brain stay stagnant. 
in, in that negativity, in that hole, pretty much. Um, and then you also have to tell yourself too, when I stay in this position, what does it lead me to? It's a downward spiral. Sometimes you end up getting real severe depression. Sometimes it moves on to more severe mental health issues. Sometimes it moves on to drug abuse. Then you start having kids and you treat those kids the same way your parents treated you and the cycle starts over. So you have to understand breaking the cycle doesn't start with your parents. It now starts with you. You have to put forth the effort. You gotta do the work. You have to do the mental health work to, to move forward. And that's what people have to understand. Or you can simply choose not to and your life will be more miserable. And that's your only two choices, you know? Nice. So the body doesn't naturally move on when you're hurt. That's not that. That's why we tea. That's why we cry. And we have certain emotions that come in when we're hurt. You have to help yourself and you have to redirect the brain so it doesn't get stuck. And you can't, will there be sad days? Of course. Will there be days you're angry? Of course. But the idea is to have more good days than bad days. I always tell myself, have more great days than good days and more good days than bad days. Mm, I like that. I like that you pointed out that's just here. You don't have to. It's just here's your choices. You you have have choices. I tell my students, it's like, you don't have to go home and practice your reading. You can simply stay on a first grade level while you're in the fifth grade. That's, that's your choice. Or you can put the work in, stop, you know, you know, walking around soaking, or you can decide to get better little by little by little by little. And once you start to see the progress, you get to say, oh, you start to correlate it with your work and what you're doing. Or you can just go home and play video games. I mean, there's nothing else for me to tell you. It's, it's your choice and I will help you get there. I will help yeah. motivate. But if you, in the end, if you decide, I don't want to do it and it's not important, then that's on you, even as a yeah, kid. Yeah, for sure. I didn't learn that until I was in my 20s. I had, you know, I had been, um, I wasn't expelled from college, but I was put on academic probation and I couldn't come back for a year. And when that happened, I went, I'm out. And I just said, I'm not doing college. I'm not cut out for college. I'm done with it. I'm not doing it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I had a mentor um, in my 20s that said to me, you know, you can choose to never go back. And he said, I, I don't actually care if you go to college or not. That, that's not the issue. But right now you're setting a pattern that when things get tough, you just quit and you give up. And you can continue with that pattern or you can go back to school and this time say, you know what? It doesn't matter that it's harder for you. Okay, so what? Dyslexic, reading challenges, reading comprehension, whatever. That's your situation. You can either say, when things get hard, I just give up. Or you can go back, get the tutors, get the extra help, do all those kind of things. And I made that choice to go back to school. And I, when I went back to school, I did very well that second round of, of school. My GPA doesn't show that great because it shows the, the earlier college too. But in terms of what I did in that, that second round, I did very well in college at that point. I did very well in college. And I think it really did set that pattern. But it was him saying to me, you, you have the choice. And here are your choices. You get to do whatever you want with that. 
And that's why the not yet mindset is so important to teach children because one for teachers, I say it, give them the tools to be motivated. Give them the tools to think positive. It may not stick right now, but they get to fourth grade and fifth grade and sixth. By the time they get to high school, they remember those words and the developmental process catches up. That's why you see so many kids, elementary, middle school, they get to ninth, 10th grade, you don't recognize them. They get to college and they're completely different human beings. And if you talk to them, they'll say, I had this one teacher or this, this one specials teacher or whatever it is, tell me this. But the developmental process has to kick in too. Same thing with learning disabilities. What you're being taught right now may not click for three or four years but you put the work in and it will eventually kick. The brain will catch up, but you have to put the work in. You know what I mean? And Kobe yeah. Bryant said it best. He said, you have to think of it this way when it comes to hard work, right? He would train from four to six, nine to 11, maybe two to four, and then maybe an evening session. And if you do that year after year after year, you cause separation, right? You cause separation from your opponent. That's how you become great. Same thing with kids. Teachers will tell you, read for 20 minutes a night. But what if you read for 40 minutes a night? You're going to speed up the process. You're going to course that separation. But you're also going to, you're going to develop mentally open it quicker. You know what I mean? And that's what kids with learning disabilities will find. Wait, I remember learning this word family in kindergarten or first grade. It makes sense now, two, three years later but you put the work in for it to make sense. If you didn't put the work in, you wouldn't even recognize it at that point. You understand what I'm saying? Right. And so the cognitive process and the developmental process have to click. And for some people, it takes a while. For some people, it may take until high school or college to when it makes sense. And that's, that's, that's the thing about academics is you get the delivery of instruction from your teacher when does it connect? For some people, it connects faster than others. But eventually, I promise you, it will connect. Mm, I love that. Well, Tamara, I want to recognize you for being a person who is truly inspiring and not just inspiring by what you say, but inspiring by the choices that you have made throughout your life. You have consistently made the choice to be resilient and not just to be resilient, but to spread light to others. And we live in a world where so many people are bitter and upset over very minor, minuscule things. Absolutely. And yet you're a person who has gone through so much and you find a way to be a positive light. You find a way to uh, bring joy to others and you find a way to forgive no matter what it is. Thank you for being that kind of person. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, what is the best way for someone to get in touch with you or find out more? Um, right now, I would just go to my Facebook page, Tamara Michelle, um, to find out a little bit more about me and my thought process and things of that nature. Um, my LinkedIn page, Tamara Michelle. Um, and I'll be adding some more TikTok pages and things of that nature in the, in the next in the upcoming weeks. But if you go to Tamara Michelle, um, you should be able to find me. 
Okay. And I'll put all those links in the show notes below. So, well, thank you so much for being a part of this and here with the mountaintop motivation podcast, we always have a, we have a tradition where we end. It doesn't matter that we're in different locations. We end each episode with a virtual fist bump. So bring it in right here. Boom. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something great out of it. And most importantly, I hope that you're going to implement something that you learned in this episode because nothing happens until you take action. If you're a six or seven figure entrepreneur who's looking to uplevel your network with a group of people who also have a rising tide lifts all boats attitude, then come and join our exclusive network of successful entrepreneurs by going to mtmsuccess.com slash rising tide.